Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze. And today, I got a cool guest with us. But first of all, I got a question. Have you guys ever wondered whether Islam and Christianity are the same? Well, stay tuned because we're going to go delving deep into that topic in just a few minutes. But for those that might be new to the Unresolved Life podcast, I'm Teresa Blaze, and I have made it my mission to seek answers to life's most difficult questions. This podcast started out of a need for me to find answers in my own life, and now I have branched out into finding uh, the, those answers to questions that other people have as well. So now let's get on to the content. I want to introduce Fuzz Rama, who is with uh, reasons to believe.org. He's got, a, you know, the three letters of a PhD behind his name, and he's got a whole bunch of scientific stuff that he's in, into. He deals with biology. But for the sake of this conversation, he was raised in a Muslim home. I wanted to bring him on and let's deal with the topic of are Christianity and Islam the same? And if not, what are the differences? Because in today's church, a lot of people tend to say, well, you know, they're the same. In fact, some na- main line uh, preachers have tried to sit there and combine them together called Chrislam or something like that. So, Foz, welcome to the show. Teresa, thank you so much for having me back with you again. I enjoyed our last conversation, and I'm really looking forward to the time we're going to hang out together. Well, I love having you. Um, For the sake of uh, the audience that may not have heard you, can you kind of give a brief overview of your growing up years and what led you to Christ? Well, I grew up really in in an unusual home. Uh, my, My father was a Muslim. He was born in India and actually was there at the time before India even won its independence from Great Britain. And when that happened, they partitioned the country and created the states of East and West Pakistan. And so my father's family was forced to immigrate into West Pakistan. And then from there, he came ultimately to the United States through Canada with a freshly minted PhD in nuclear physics and worked uh, for General Dynamics, uh, developing anti-ballistic missiles in the 1950s, and then later became a university professor. And that's where he met my mother, who was from a Catholic background. She was a non-practicing Catholic. And so I grew up in a home where my father was a devout Muslim, uh, but, but he was actually fairly progressive and modern in his approach to Islam. And, and I think this is something that many people fail to recognize, is that we think of Islam many times in terms of radical Islam and, uh, and fundamentalist Islam, but there is a a large proportion of Muslims in the world who actually are fairly modern in their perspectives, but yet still are, are rather devout. And that would characterize my father. Typically, when a Muslim marries someone who's not a Muslim, the expectation is that that person will convert to Islam. My father never asked that of my mother. So I grew up in a home where I was exposed to quite a bit of, of Islam. My father would get up every morning, he would go through a ritual cleansing, he would face the East and, and pray. He carried a prayer booklet with him wherever he went and uh, was, again, very devout in his faith. But he never expected my brother and I necessarily to follow suit. He more or less left it up to our, our own devices to choose what we would want to do with our lives in that respect. Uh, but as I was uh, growing up, 
there were times where we lived in, in, in a community, a small community in West Virginia. There weren't mosques there, but there were Muslims in the community. And from time to time, we would gather at people's houses and would go and they, it would, it, for a prayer meeting where, and I learned how to pray and take part in those meetings. Uh, when I was 16, I dabbled in Islam quite a bit. I was interested in connecting more with my father, trying to understand a little bit more about my heritage. So I recited the Shahada, which is the, 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 the declaration that Muhammad is the true prophet and Allah is the one true God, and learned to pray for my father. I read from English translations of the Quran. But after about a year and a half, I, I kind of gave up on Islam. It wasn't so much that I didn't think Islam was true, but it was more that this was really very burdensome and meaningless to me as a young man. And interestingly enough, I very quickly settled into a position of agnosticism, particularly going to college, taking courses in chemistry and biology, where I was, where I had the evolutionary paradigm presented to me and infused in me as part of my education. And, and so in that setting, I began to wonder if, you know, evolution can explain everything. Why do we need God? And it was really in graduate school when I began to appreciate the, the sheer complexity and the elegance and the beauty of the cell's chemical systems that I recognized there really has to be a creator. And long story short, it was a challenge on the part of a pastor to read the Sermon on the Mount that convinced me that Jesus had to be who Christians claimed him to be. So it was the Holy Spirit revealing God to me through the record of nature, the Holy Spirit revealing the person of Christ to me through the pages of scripture, and a whole lot of prayer on the part of, uh, uh, of people who were part of this pastor's church that, that led me to faith in Christ. So I became a Christian because I felt like Christianity was true, not so much because I was convinced that Islam wasn't true, if that makes any sense. You know, it does. Regarding the brand of Islam you grew up in, what was your father's view of Christians and Jews at the time? My father felt like Judaism and Christianity were incorrect. He looked at the claim that Jesus is God as being a blasphemous claim, and uh, that, you know, his, his, he, I remember him saying, you know, in Islam, it's a direct relationship that we have with God, that we don't need a mediator between God and man. And I don't think he fully understood who Jesus really is with those statements. But there never was really any animosity that he had towards Jews or Christians that were, to me, overt. You know, we grew up in a home where there was a, a negative view of Christianity as a religion. But my father, interestingly enough, was a pacifist and was a, actually a very staunch pacifist. In part, that was, I think, due to his experience when India won its independence from Great Britain and, and his family was forced to immigrate into West Pakistan. It was an incredibly violent and turbulent time in India. People were losing their lives. They lost, his family lost everything they had in terms of their wealth. He had a brother that died in a refugee camp. And I think through that experience, it really sh he was really shaped in a significant way and was really very much a pacifist uh, and actually saw his pacifism being uh, driven in large measure by his faith as a Muslim, interestingly enough. That is interesting. 
as I as I am aware, there are two brands of Islam. So was your father more along the Sunni branch or the Shia branch of Islam? Um, I, I don't know because it it never was important to my father. In fact, that never that conversation never ever happened in my experience interacting with my father, even when I was actively learning about Islam. There are these two branches, as you say, to Islam. In fact, there's other branches of, as well. But for a lot of Muslims, that distinction isn't as important necessarily uh, as we might think. Now, for other Muslims, it is very important, and it is the basis of sectarian violence that happens within the Islamic world. But for other Muslims, it really isn't as important. And that's particularly true, I think, for Muslims that have a more modern perspective on their faith. What was your father's view of, say, the uh, jihadis or the more uh, strict by the book, the Quran viewpoints? That's interesting because when I was growing up, I don't know that you could say that there was that kind of attention on radical Islam. This would have been the you know, late 60s, early 70s, even into the, into the early 80s. Uh, so, so our attention on radical Islam is really something that is much more of a recent phenomena because of the, the tragic events of, of 9-11. But I can't imagine my father being supportive of that, that kind of violence in the name of Islam. I think he would have, have found it to be repugnant. Given that he was a pacifist, I don't think he would ever find any kind of justification for that kind of, those kind of acts of, of senseless violence or that kind of coercion to get somebody to embrace Islam. And yet, didn't he believe, I mean, doesn't Islam teach? I mean, because, I mean, the way we understand jihad is we have to, you know, from a Muslim standpoint, we always hear it's, it means like a holy war, right? So what did he, did he talk about the idea of a jihad? Did he talk about the idea of spreading Islam? Or was that never really spoken of in your home? Yeah, we, we just never had those kind of conversations. That Those topics were really not on the radar screen. You know, and this, this is really kind of a complex topic, I think, uh, that, that you're bringing up, but a very important one, of course. There is a, an element of Islam, to be, to be clear, that, is, that are radical, that are fundamentalists, that look at jihad exactly in the way that you're thinking, that this is really a holy war, and that holy war has been declared against, you know, the, the West that, you know, Muslims are justified in, in, in acts of violence against people that are, are reprobate, that, that, are, that are, you know, part of the Western world. But there are other Muslims who would look at some of those passages and they would see the, the concept of jihad as being much more like a personal war against sin, against blasphemy that, that you would struggle with internally. So they see the concept of jihad as really applying to their own internal struggle, you know, to root out that which is opposed to Allah, if you will, uh, in, your, in their own internal being. Uh, there are Muslims who would look at passages uh, in the Quran that speak about Muslims and Jews and Christians uh, living together in a peaceful way, that Jews and Christians are people of the book and that should, they should be respected, that they take those passages very seriously. And I've, I've interacted with a group of Muslims who look at passages that command Muslims to uh, attack Jews and Christians as being contextualized to a time where Jews and Christians were persecuting 
Muslims and that these were passages permitting Muslims to defend themselves against Jews and Christians. There's not a, a consistent interpretation of those passages in the Quran in the Islamic world, that there's, there are a variety of perspectives that people hold. You know, really, Islam isn't monolithic. It, it, you know, and, and in a sense, an analogy might be some of the passages in the Old Testament that people point to as skeptics and say, isn't God commanding genocide? Isn't God a moral monster? And of course, as, as Christians, we interpret those passages sometimes in very subtle and nuanced ways where we, we look at the context, we look at other issues that shed light on how we are to properly understand those passages of scripture. And I think there are Muslim scholars who engage in the same kind of practice with regard to, you know, how do you interpret those passages commanding jihad? So it's not a simple response to that question. It's really a complex landscape. And, you know, I find that when I engage Muslims, if I, I ask about those questions, how do you understand those passages and engage that person based on their understanding of that passage where I give them the freedom to interpret the Quran in the way that they feel led or they, they according to their convictions. Uh, so it's a complex issue. Uh, and again, a very important issue. Let's kind of shift a little bit. Talk about Christianity versus Islam. Like I said in my opening, I know for a fact there are certain um, mainline preachers whom I'm not going to name because it's just not mm-hmm. just my time to name. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that the man would be recognized if, if I said who it was. However, he has, for example tried to say that Islam and Christianity are one in the same. How would you respond to such an a assertion like that? I would say that that is absolutely not true. The Muslims that I know would be offended for someone to say to them that their faith as a Muslim is no different than, the, than a Christian's faith, that Islam and Christianity are the same. I think Muslims would find that as offensive as I think you and I find that, Teresa. I think they are very different religious systems. There are commonalities that they have. And those commonalities, I think, are valuable for us as we try to engage Muslims with the hope of presenting the Christian faith and sharing the gospel. Those, those common features, I think, are important because they create common ground that I think allows genuine friendships to be built between Muslims and Christians. But on the other hand, Islam and Christianity are not the same religion. The our concepts of God are similar, but they also are, are different at the same time. We, we both would say that God is trans, a transcendent creator. There is one God. But as Christians, we understand that God may be one in essence, but he's three in persons. And, and that's a very different view of God. As Christians, we, we see God as being unchanging. Whereas Muslims, the Muslim view of God is that God is, there's the capricious element of God. As Christians, we believe that God is knowable because he's revealed himself to us through the record of nature, through the, the, the words that he's written on our heart, but also through the person of Christ and that we have an intimate interaction with God through today through the Holy Spirit. Whereas Muslims believe that God is unknowable. That, that there's almost a, an element of agnosticism in Islam in the sense that God is not knowable. And in fact, to say that God is knowable actually is almost viewed as a blasphemous statement because they see God as so wholly other 
that they find it profoundly offensive and blasphemous to elevate anything to God's level other than God himself or to attach anything to God other than God himself. And so they see the concept of the Trinity where uh, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as being a blasphemous conception of God. And of course, the idea that Jesus would be fully God and fully human, again, is something that, that Muslims would profoundly reject, though they have a very high view of Jesus in, in the, that's taught from the Quran, that's in their theology, where Jesus is considered to be this, this, high, this special prophet uh, of God. They, they respect Jesus. They admire Jesus in Islam, but they, they view Jesus as being a human being, as a prophet. They would you know, reject the notion that Jesus died on the cross. They view that the idea that that God would allow one of his prophets to suffer in that way is being offensive, but rather God rescued Jesus and it was Judas that was sacrificed on the cross and that Jesus is with God, but that Jesus will return again. Uh, There's a high. Oh, no, that's interesting. Yeah. Muslims are actually looking for the the second coming of Christ. That's part of their, their eschatology. So these are points of common ground that we can take advantage of to build friendships and to enter into interesting conversations. But even the view of salvation is very different. In Islam, salvation is thoroughly works-based. So Muslims engage in prayer. They engage in all kinds of religious practices to earn God's favor, to earn merit with, with the hope that that merit will earn their way into, into paradise. Under, uh, let me ask you this, under the Islamic system, do they have any way of knowing whether they've done enough to earn paradise? No, the answer is no, they don't. The, and part of it is even if your, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, so to speak, uh, you, because Allah's nature is capricious and no one can know what, what Allah wills other than what Allah wills. And, and so because of Allah's capricious nature even if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, Allah may just simply decide not to grant you admission into paradise. And this is why, you know, through the, the, um, the, jihad, the acts of jihad, right, where they are willing to uh, sacrifice themselves for the sake of Allah, uh, where they're looking to be martyrs, are actually trying to earn their salvation because they feel like they've done something that is beyond their capacity to make amends for, or that they're so concerned about the capricious nature of Allah and the uncertainty of their salvation that they're willing to, to become martyrs for the sake of Islam. And with the, I act, the idea of doing that, that they're going to enter into and they have certainty for their salvation. And of course, this is very different than the Christian view of salvation, right? Which is, uh, we can't earn our salvation. Our salvation is a gift. It's not by our merit, but it's through the work of Christ on the cross and his grace and his mercy that we have salvation. But we have a certainty in our salvation because of the nature and the character of who Christ is. So there are very big differences between Islam and Christianity, and these are not superficial differences. And I think it's just as offensive to a Muslim to say that Christianity in Islam is the same as it is to, to say that to somebody who is a, a, a committed Christian. Because of the holy nature of Allah, quote unquote, does a Muslim, even if they, if they, even if they were to uh, sacrifice themselves in jihad, as the Quran calls for, could he still? I mean, it, are they guaranteed even then salvation, or are they still kind of at the well? This may work, kind of like a last ditch effort. 
that act of martyrdom is is the only thing that will guarantee essentially their salvation is is that act of martyrdom in that way everything you've said doesn't strike me that Allah is caring or even gives a care about the people that worship him i think that is a really perceptive insight is that the, the nature of god is really very different in again in islam and christianity in many respects and to me you know one of the things that i think is really fascinating and when it comes to similarities and differences is that as christians we believe that again god has revealed himself to us now we believe that we don't have the capacity to know god on our own but be, but because god wants us to know him he has gone through the effort to reveal himself to us and he wants to be known and and there is an incredible intimacy in our capacity to know god that that intimacy is not only through the the revelation of God that we have from the record of nature, from the the words written on our heart, from the scriptures that we have where God is intervening in human history and we're recording those interactions that he has with human beings. But the fact that Jesus is lived among us, that he took on human form, that he's fully God and fully human, that he becomes our high priest, that he can identify with us so much because he's lived as a human being suggest a, a profound intimacy between God and human beings just through the person of Christ. And of course, that intimacy continues with the, the Holy Spirit, who is part of the person of the Trinity that the church is interacting with today in large measure. You know, in, in passages in, in Romans, for example, where the Holy Spirit is, is described as interceding on our behalf, interpreting our groans before the throne, there's a profound intimacy in our relationship or even prayer where we can hear from God, we can experience God. That is a profound intimacy that we have. Whereas for a Muslim, prayer is an act of, of obedience. It's a, it's a ritual that you're going through to honor Allah with the hope that, that you'll earn Allah's pleasure through that act of prayer. You know, there's a, a very big difference between Islam and Christianity in that sense. And, and to me, that's something that I think is extremely valuable to highlight when you engage a Muslim is Muslim, I mean, Islam, or sorry, Muslim means one who submits to God. And so Muslims desire to submit to God. They, des- they desire to be all in, uh, to, to serve and to please God. They, they want to earn their salvation. They want to earn Allah's pleasure. Uh, and so that that desire that they have is the desire that we have as Christians. But sadly, that desire can't be fulfilled in Islam in the way that it's fulfilled in Christianity. And I think that is a really important distinction. But it's a, an important point, I think, to bring up as we are engaging Muslims is to say, you could have this, what you, what you crave, you could have. Uh, uh, and it's, you can have that because of the person of Christ who reconciled us to to the creator. Two things. One, when you brought up the Romans passage, I was reminded uh, there was a point where I was emotionally, emotionally, there was just a lot going on. And I remember coming into my prayer closet, uh, shutting the door, and I couldn't even pray. But I remember just crying out in my spirit and in my heart to God. And I remember being met there. And the idea that prayer is kind of like that obligation. It almost feels like that that act of submission is being corrupted 
uh, that that desire to submit to God is corrupted. And, you know, along that line, I have heard, and I don't know if this is true, maybe you could kind of bring some enlightenment, is, is that the Jesus that the, the Muslims are waiting for um, in the last days is actually the it described in, as the Antichrist in the Bible. Do you know if that is uh, anywhere true? That's that's a really interesting question. And Teresa, I'm sorry, I don't know that I could provide any kind of insight into that. I, I know a, a fair amount about Islam just simply because of my experience growing up. And, and I really understand kind of the, the way Muslims view the world and the, the ethos of Islam. But I'm really not, uh, I'm really not a, a scholar in Islam, if, if, if that makes any sense. And, and so those kind of questions are great questions. I wish I could help you, but I just don't know the answer to that. And that, and I respect that. Um, let me let me ask you this: How do Muslims view the prospect of good and evil, or do they have an answer for why there is evil and suffering? Muslims do have a, a very clear concept of good and evil. They they do view morality as being objective, uh, and that's another place of common ground that we would have with Muslims. That I think is a great place to to begin to springboard into conversations about our differences. And in terms of, of pain and suffering, this is a complex question, to be certain. This is, this is my perspective on it. Uh, and it's, this is based on my experience with my father. When I became a Christian, and I told my, my mom and my dad that I'd become a Christian, my, my father was furious with me, which shocked me because he always said, it's up to you. You can choose whatever path you want to go. But as soon as I came home and I said, I am I'm embracing the Christian faith, he felt that that was the ultimate betrayal. And in it, it destroyed our relationship, and we were estranged even to the point of the, of the time of his death. Um, and I can even remember my father saying, demanding that I renounce my faith as a Christian, uh, and I just simply couldn't do that. And, um, and so it was a, a very difficult time uh, you know, for the remainder of his, of his, of his life. But my father, towards the end of his life, uh, became very ill and had a lot of health problems. And he felt that those health problems were punishment that he was receiving from God because he failed through my conversion to Christianity. In fact, he told me, and, and my mother told me as well, that my father viewed my conversion to Christianity as his greatest failure in life and that he was tormented, that he would have dreams of his father coming to him, being very angry with him because I converted to Christianity. And so, the, the, so what, I, what, what comes out of that to me is that, this, that, that, that suffering is essentially either a, a punishment that is coming from Allah towards those people who have failed him, who he's dis- displeased with, or it is a, a challenge that is being presented to them to test their faithfulness. To some as- in some respects, I think Muslims will see suffering and, and, and pain that they go through as being having a purpose, but that purpose is testing, or it is a result of Allah's displeasure with them. And so, you know, Allah punishes those who are sinners, whereas Christ loves those who are sinners. Those who are Allah's enemies are punished. Those who are Christ's enemies are people that Jesus died for and who's opening up his arms to 
to embrace them. So there's a very different perspective on suffering. I don't think as Christians we would ever say, or suffering is a punishment that we're receiving from God. Now, our, our suffering might be experiencing the consequences of very poor decisions that we make <laughs> that are outside of God's will. I think God will allow the consequences to take place. Uh, but I don't think that the, that the suffering that we experience is ever imposed on us from God as a, as a punishment or as a, tr- a trial or a test for our faithfulness that punish or that, that suffering may be part of a process where we are refined, where our character is being developed, that there may be a purpose to it. But we also are never left to suffer on our, by our, on our own. Christ has, has already suffered for us. Very interesting. So let me ask you this. How did you respond knowing that your father felt like a failure because of your conversion? I mean, that had to be extremely painful. It was painful. I would initially try to engage my father, and it always would wind up with very heated arguments. And so I eventually just realized, okay, I, I, I just can't go down this path with my father. It's just ruining any time that we have together as a family. But, but my father you know, and I were, were, were estranged. We never had that, the same relationship from that point onward that we had prior to my conversion. And when my my father died, I remember being at his deathbed, praying for him, hoping for another opportunity to share the gospel, and it just didn't come. And as a result of the, the death of my father, I realized that, you know, I just really never took the time to prepare myself to really, not only to, art, not only to articulate the gospel, I could, I could articulate the gospel, but to really defend the gospel, to really be capable of giving a rational basis for why Christianity makes sense. And, and that really motivated me to dedicating my life to evangelism and to the enterprise of apologetics. So there was good that came out of, out of my father's death in that respect. You know, and I always just place God, my father in God's hands, trusting that God is just, that God is merciful, and that my father's fate is what is it, what is going to be true, true justice and true, truly right. And, and so I, I, I trust in that. But it was amazing because through the process of my father's death, my prayer was a prayer of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving for who my father was and what my father had done for me. And I was a- able through that experience to completely forgive my father, to look at my father's life with gratitude and with compassion and mercy, I am, am sympathetic to my father. And so I don't harbor ill feelings towards my father as, as a result of, of essentially his, uh, you know, he, he, my father dis- in effect disowning me. Uh, and so there was God's mercy in the midst of, of all of that and, and, and a healing and a reconciliation that took place, at least in my heart, towards my father and in the memory of my father. So I'm very proud of who he was and and thankful for you know for what he did for me. I know that he he deeply loved me and, and that he did things on my behalf. Um, and and so I, I view my father's the end of his life in it, it as a tragic as tragic and and I'm saddened by it and I, I'm sympathetic, but I don't again harbor ill feelings towards my father or resentment towards my father whatsoever. And I I attribute that strictly to the 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 miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. 
you said something and I and I kind of want to push into that a little bit because there may be someone who doesn't quite get that because how could I mean you said you know I trust my father's fate to God's mercy and and justice would you still say that if God in the end said you know what your father never received my son and therefore there's a place he must go yeah I I would say that I would I would still be able to say that because you know I over the the 30 plus years 33 years now of of my of my walk with Christ, I know who God is. And I know that God is a righteous God, he, He's a, uh, but he's also a God of mercy and love, and that those two qualities are not in opposition to each other. They actually, uh, I think, are they intersect, and, and of course, they intersect very much so at the cross. But I know God's character. I know who God is. And so I can trust God, and I can place my Father in God's hands uh, because of that and, and know that that whatever decision or whatever happens to my father, it is the, a just decision. It is a loving decision. It is a, a righteous decision. It is a, a merciful decision because that's God's nature and character. So in, in general, so if someone dies and let's say it's it's a loved one, and and you know maybe one of our listeners have had a situation where a loved one died, but they're like, I don't know, if they were a Christian. How can I truly believe that God is just and merciful when that that was my loved one? I want to see him in heaven, but I don't know that they were a Christian. It's a tough issue, and you know there just are not pat answers. Though what I'm going to say is going to sound like a pat answer, but God has made Himself known to us. And, you know, God has given each of us the freedom to embrace him or to, to turn our back on him. And I think it deeply saddens God when people turn their back on him, but he's never going to force people or coerce people into belief. It's going to be something that we do, in a sense, on our own, as part of our own volition or our own free will. And so I think God loves us so much that he gives us the absolute freedom to choose. And, you know, if you're not willing to, to choose God or to move towards God in any capacity here on, on earth, why would you want to spend eternity with God? And, and so God is giving people really what they want or what they, what they choose. And it may be that they want to have an eternity apart from God. Uh, and if that's what they choose, then I think God sadly grants them that wish. Uh, that, and that's how I, I make sense of it. It's, it seems, maybe pat a, a pat answer but I, I i don't know how how to respond to that much much better than that really i understand i mean that it, it is a hard um one to wrestle with because you really have to ask yourself well what do i believe really about god is he a tyrant or do i actually believe what i say i believe yeah in a sense god doesn't send people to hell but rather people choose that to go to hell and and I and uh, I think that is how I make sense of how can God be a God of love, but also a God who would send people to an eternity of tor- an eternal torment. And again, it's not God sending people there, but God choosing that. I mean, maybe another another analogy. And again, this may seem a little trite, but if I'm a if I'm a teacher and I'm giving students an exam and I spend all this time 
giving people the information that's going to be on the exam. I give people time to study for the exam and people choose not to study or they, and then they show up and they fail the exam. Am I being a tyrant as a teacher to give that person a failing grade? Am I being unjust by giving them a failing grade? Am I being unloving by giving them a failing grade? Because they chose they chose those consequences, if you will. While that was a rabbit trail, I think that was a, kind of an important one to um, travel down because a lot of people uh, struggle with that issue of how can God be loving and yet. And I have asked that question many a time in my uh, journey of faith, especially um, trying to answer those questions in my own walk. Because I think that's the question that even Christians have of, I believe this, but why do I believe it? Yeah. Like I say, you know, the answers that I have come up with feel very pat. They feel very trite. And and I don't know that they would satisfy somebody who's really struggling with those issues. But I think there are just aspects of our faith that, that are there, where there's an element of mystery and there's an element where I think things are really very unsettled. And all I know is that at the end of the day, uh, God has revealed himself to us through scripture. So getting back um, to the uh, Islam versus being a Christian, if there was someone out there listening that was a Muslim, and maybe they've been a Muslim all their life, maybe they're a more traditional Muslim or they're more modern, whatever the case may be, and maybe they're hearing this for the first time and they're hearing us talk about God uh, from the Christian perspective for the first time and wrestling with these issues. Would, was there, is there something that you would, you would say to them? I would say to them that the, the issues that they have with Christianity, uh, the, 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 the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully human, the, the triune nature of God, or, or the idea that God would allow his prophet, Jesus, to suffer on the cross, an undignified death, those, those aspects of Christianity that, as a Muslim, you might find the most offensive are actually the, the aspects of the Christian faith that I think highlight the greatness of God far beyond uh, the concept of God that, that Muslims have. Because the, the, the whole idea that, that Jesus would take on human form, that God would take on human form, that God would condescend himself to take on human form and to live among sinful human beings is the ultimate expression of love because God is willing to, quote unquote, humiliate himself in order to reach out to human beings as an ultimate expression of the love that he has for human beings that God has to be triune in nature because God is love. If God is one in essence and one in person, who does God love before the world is created? But if God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then that relationship of love, there's an object and a subject to love that exists in that triune nature, and that we as human beings made in God's image are invited into into that love relationship because we bear God's image that the triune nature of God is an expression of love, which is the ultimate character of God, the greatness of God. And the fact that Jesus died on the cross, God didn't allow Jesus to die on the cross, but Jesus on his own volition chose to sacrifice himself on the cross 
so that we as human beings could be in a relationship with him. So the very things that we that Muslims find is the greatest offense about the, about the Christian expression of God and the nature of Christ are the very features that highlight, I think, God's greatness. They don't, these properties of God aren't denigrating God, but rather are highlighting the greatness of God and the greatest attribute of God, which is love. And that love is available to you as, as a Muslim, uh, as it is to us as Christians. And we would love for you to experience that love. And there is a book that I actually read. Uh, it's, uh, what was his name? Nabu Krishi, I think the name was. Oh, Nabil Krishi, yes. Thank you, thank you. He has written a ton of books dealing with the Islamic faith. In fact, um, the one that I wrote talked about his conversion experience. Um, um, and I am going to link that in the show notes. If you are listening and you are a Muslim, I would just ask that you give it a read. Okay. Give it a read. You know, oftentimes Islams will cite that, uh, Allah Akbar, God is great. Well, not only is God great, not only is the God of the Bible great, but the expression of God outlined in the Bible is also beautiful and is also holy. And, 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 and it seems to me that what we're saying here is that God is holy. Even you as a Muslim would agree with that, but he's also beautiful and he expresses himself in such a way that he invites you to at least examine the claim. Would you agree with that, Foz? I sure would. That that was well stated, Teresa. So I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up here, guys. But um, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and link link up any uh, uh, that book. Um, I can't recall the title but it, i'm telling you guys it, it's a well worth the read in fact it's going to be on the uh, reading list that's going to very soon go up on unresolved hopefully i will have it up by the time this podcast is released i'm still working on putting things together foss do you have any final thoughts before we sign off no i, I don't other than um this is that i hope that christians through hearing this this program and and reading the Mule crushy's book really are motivated to reach out to the Muslims that they encounter. Don't, don't view them with fear or suspicion, but view them as, as a mission field that we, we need to reach and become friends with Muslims, love them, and try to find common ground. And, and in doing so, create a relationship with them that you can then have good discussions about the differences between Christianity and Islam in a way that helps them to see what Christianity is really all about. We, we don't have to convince Muslims that, is, that the Quran is not the word of God or that Muhammad isn't a true prophet, but all we have to do is show them what Christianity is about and help them to understand the correct concept of God that is, that is I think, found in the, the expression of the Christian faith. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.